everybody, welcome to this week's episode of the Weird Tales Podcast. My name is Taiko Alhambra. Thank you for listening. Um, Not a whole lot going on right now. We are down. This is the penultimate episode of The Three Imposters. It will be done next week, I promise. Um, but uh, this is the penultimate episode. I hope you are enjoying it. Um, just because this is just kind of a thing I've been doing, here's a quick update. The uh, mobile team that I work with that does the COVID testing, over the past over the past two or three weeks, uh, because the testing numbers have just gone down drastically for whatever reason, um, said, uh, you guys aren't doing enough testing for us to continue to pay 15 people on your crew. So uh, from here on out, uh, you're down to you're down to five. Make your decisions. So five people a day instead of 15 people a day. So that was quite the cut. But um, I was fortunate enough due to being one of the more senior members on the team to have uh, a lot of shifts. So, you know, everything's going all right with that. But um, we recently got news just like yesterday, I think. No, it was two days ago because this is coming out on Monday. Nope, it's coming out on Monday. This was three days ago. Um, uh, We got news three days ago. Three days ago. Well, okay. We just got news three days ago that... Um, we're going to be helping out with the, with a vaccination team, like for the foreseeable future. So, uh, we're all back working again and we're all helping to get people vaccinated, which is really exciting. It, um, kind of reduces even more, um, the risk of, of, um, contracting COVID, um, which before, you know, was a risk because we're testing people and a lot of people would come to the, they would come to the testing site and they'd be like, yeah, I tested positive and I just want to get another test to make sure that uh, that I'm, you know, that I actually am. And we're just like, oh, great. Thanks for letting us know. Um, but, uh, you know, now so now we're, we're helping with the vaccination program and everything. And um, so that's just that's just really exciting to help get the, the vaccines out and uh, get people vaccinated and get everything ready to go. So all that to say, uh if you are able to get yourself registered and get vaccinated as soon as possible, um, there's nothing wrong with the vaccines. I don't, I, I don't know where this story about microchips in the vaccine came from. There's no, there's nothing like that. And it's a vaccine. It's good for you. Vaccines are good. I don't care what friggin' Jim Carrey says. He's an idiot. All right. Get vaccinated if, and when you can. And, um, Let's uh let's go ahead and get on with the show. Strange occurrence in Clerkenwell. Mr. Dyson had inhabited for some years a couple of rooms in a moderately quiet street in Bloomsbury, where, as he somewhat pompously expressed it, he held his finger on the pulse of life without being deafened with the thousand rumors of the main arteries of London. It was to him a source of peculiar, if esoteric, gratification that from the adjacent corner of Tottenham Court Road, a hundred lines of omnibuses went to the four quarters of the town. He would dilate on the facilities for visiting Dalston and dwell on the admirable line that knew extremist Ealing and the streets beyond Whitechapel. His rooms, which had originally been furnished apartments, he had gradually purged of their more piquant parts, and though one could not find here the glowing splendors of his old chambers in the streets off the Strand, there was something of severe grace about the appointments which did credit to his taste. The rugs were old and of the true faded beauty. The etchings, nearly all of them proofs printed by the artist, made a good show with broad white margins and black frames, 
and there was no spurious black oak. Indeed, there was but little furniture of any kind. A plain and honest table, square and sturdy, stood in one corner, a seventeenth-century settle fronted the hearth, and two wooden elbow-chairs and a bookshelf of the empire made up the equipment with an exception worthy of note. For Dyson cared for none of these things. His place was at his own bureau, a quaint old piece of lacquered work at which he would sit for hour after hour with his back to the room, engaged in the desperate pursuit of literature, or, as he termed his profession, the chase of the phrase. The neat array of pigeonholes and drawers teemed and overflowed with manuscript and notebooks, the experiments and efforts of many years, and the inner well, a vast and cavernous receptacle, was stuffed with accumulated ideas. Dyson was a craftsman who gloved all of the detail and the technique of his work intensely, and if, as has been hinted, he deluded himself a little with the name of artist, yet his amusements were eminently harmless, and so far as can be ascertained, he, or the publishers, had chosen the good part of not tiring the world with printed matter. Here, then, Dyson would shut himself up with his fancies, experimenting with words and striving, as his friend the recluse of Bayswater strove, with the almost invincible problem of style, but always with a fine confidence, extremely different from the chronic depression of the realist. He had been almost continuously at work on some scheme that struck him as well-nigh magical in its possibilities since the night of his adventure with the ingenious tenant of the first floor in Abingdon Grove, and as he laid down the pen with a glow of triumph, he reflected that he had not viewed the streets for five days in succession. With all the enthusiasm of his accomplished labor still working in his brain, he put away his papers and went out, pacing the pavement at first in that rare mood of exaltation which finds in every stone upon the way the possibilities of a masterpiece. It was growing late, and the autumn evening was drawing to a close amidst veils of haze and mist, and in the stilled air the voices and the roaring traffic and incessant feet seemed to Dyson like the noise upon the stage when all the house is silent. In the square, the leaves rippled down as quick as summer rain, and the street beyond was beginning to flare with the lights in the butcher's shop and the vivid illumination of the greengrocer. It was a Saturday night, and the swarming populations of the slums were turning out in force. The battered women in rusty black had begun to paw the lumps of cagmag, and others gloated over unwholesome cabbages, and there was a brisk demand for four ale. Dyson passed through these night fires with some relief. He loved to meditate, but his thoughts were not as De Quincey's after his dose. He cared not two straws whether onions were dear or cheap, and would not have exulted if meat had fallen to two pence a pound. Absorbed in the wilderness of the tale he had been writing, weighing nicely the points of plot and construction, relishing the recollection of this and that happy phrase, and dreading failure here and there, he left the rush and the whistle of the gas flares behind him, and began to touch upon pavements more deserted. He had turned without taking note to the northward, and was passing through an ancient fallen street, where now notices of floors and offices to let hung out, but still about it there was the grace and the stiffness of the age of wigs, a broad roadway, a broad pavement, and on each side a grave line of houses with long and narrow windows flush with the walls, all of mellowed brickwork. Dyson walked with quick steps, as he resolved that short work must be made of a certain episode, but he was in that happy humor of invention, and another chapter rose in the inner chamber of his brain, 
and he dwelt on the circumstances he was to write down with curious pleasure. It was charming to have the quiet streets to walk in, and in his thought he made a whole district the cabinet of his studies, and vowed he would come again. Heedless of his course, he struck off to the east again, and soon found himself involved in a squalid network of grey two-storied houses, and then, in the waste void and elements of brickwork, the passages and unmade roads behind great factory walls, encumbered with the refuse of the neighborhood, forlorn, ill-lighted, and desperate. A brief turn, and there rose before him the unexpected, a hill suddenly lifted from the level ground, its steep ascent marked by the lighted lamps, and eager as an explorer, Dyson found his way to the place, wondering where his crooked paths had brought him. Here all was again decorous, but hideous in the extreme. The builder, someone lost in the deep gloom of the early twenties, had conceived the idea of twin villas in grey brick, shaped in a manner to recall the outlines of the Parthenon, each with its classic form broadly marked with raised bands of stucco. The name of the street was all strange, and for a further surprise, the top of the hill was crowned with an irregular plot of grass and fading trees, called a square, and here again the Parthenon motive had persisted. Beyond, the streets were curious, wild in their irregularities. Here a row of sordid, dingy dwellings, dirty and disreputable in appearance, and there, without warning, stood a house genteel and prim, with wire blinds and a brazen knocker, as clean and trim as if it had been the doctor's house in some benighted little country town. These surprises and discoveries began to exhaust Dyson, and he hailed with delight the blazing windows of a public house, and went in with the intention of testing the beverage provided for the dwellers in this region, as remote as Libya and Pamphylia and the parts about Mesopotamia. The babble of voices from within warned him that he was about to assist at the true parliament of the London workmen, and he looked about him for that more retired entrance called private. When he had settled himself on an exiguous bench and had ordered some beer, he began to listen to the jangling talk in the public bar beyond. It was a senseless argument, alternately furious and maudlin, with appeals to Bill and Tom and medieval survivals of speech, words that Chaucer wrote belched out with zeal and relish, and the din of pots jerked down and coppers wrapped smartly on the zinc counter made a thorough base for it all. Dyson was calmly smoking his pipe between the sips of beer when an indefinite-looking figure slid rather than walked into the compartment. The man started violently when he saw Dyson placidly sitting in the corner and glanced keenly about him. He seemed to be on wires, controlled by some electric machine, for he almost bolted out of the door when the barman asked with what he could serve him, and his hand shivered as he took the glass. Dyson inspected him with a little curiosity. He was muffled up almost to the lips, and a soft felt hat was drawn down over his eyes. He looked as if he shrank from every glance, and a more raucous voice suddenly uplifted in the public bar seemed to find in him a sympathy that made him shake and quiver like a jelly. It was pitiable to see anyone so thrilled with nervousness, and Dyson was about to address some trivial remark of casual inquiry to the man, when another person came into the compartment, and laying a hand on his arm, muttered something in an undertone and vanished as he came. But Dyson had recognized him as the smooth-tongued and smooth-shaven Burton, who had displayed so sumptuous a gift in lying, and yet he thought little of it, for his whole faculty of observation was absorbed in the lamentable and yet grotesque spectacle before him. At the first touch of the hand on his arm, 
the unfortunate man had wheeled round as if spun on a pivot, and shrank back with a low, piteous cry as if some dumb beast were caught in the toils. The blood fled away from the wretch's face, and the skin became gray as if a shadow of death had passed in the air and fallen on it, and Dyson caught a choking whisper. "'Mr. Davies, for God's sake, have pity on me, Mr. Davies. On my oath, I say—' And his voice sank to silence as he heard the message, and strove in vain to bite his lip, and summon up to his aid some tinge of manhood. He stood there a moment, wavering as the leaves of an aspen, and then he was gone out into the street, as, Dyson thought silently, with his doom upon his head. He had not been gone a minute when it suddenly flashed into Dyson's mind that he knew the man. It was undoubtedly the young man with spectacles for whom so many ingenious persons were searching. The spectacles indeed were missing, but the pale face, the dark whiskers, and the timid glances were enough to identify him. Dyson saw at once that by a succession of hazards he had, unawares, hit upon the scent of some desperate conspiracy, wavering as the track of a loathsome snake in and out of the highways and byways of the London cosmos. The truth was instantly pictured before him, and he divined that all unconscious and unheeding he had been privileged to see the shadows of hidden forms, chasing and hurrying and grasping and vanishing across the bright curtain of common life, soundless and silent, or only babbling fables and pretenses. For him, in an instant, the jargoning of voices, the garish splendor, and all the vulgar tumult of the public house became part of magic. For here, before his eyes, a scene in this grim mystery play had been enacted, and he had seen human flesh grow gray with a palsy of fear. The very hell of cowardice and terror had gaped wide within an arm's breadth. In the midst of these reflections, the barman came up and stared at him as if to hint that he had exhausted his right to take his ease, and Dyson bought another lease of the seat by an order for more beer. As he pondered the brief glimpse of tragedy, he recollected that with his first start of haunted fear, the young man with whiskers had drawn his hand swiftly from his great coat pocket, and that he had heard something fall to the ground, and pretending to have dropped his pipe, Dyson began to grope in the corner searching with his fingers. He touched something, and drew it gently to him, and with one brief glance as he put it quietly in his pocket, he saw it was a little old-fashioned notebook bound in faded green morocco. He drank down his beer at a gulp and left the place, overjoyed at his fortunate discovery and busy with conjecture as to the possible importance of the find. By turns he dreaded to find perhaps mere blank leaves or the labored follies of a betting book, but the faded Morocco cover seemed to promise better things and hint at mysteries. He piloted himself with no little difficulty out of the sour and squalid quarter he had entered with a light heart, and emerging at Gray's Inn Road, struck off down Guilford Street and hastened home, only anxious for a lighted candle and solitude. Dyson sat down at his bureau and placed the little book before him. It was an effort to open the leaves and dare disappointment, but in desperation at last, he laid his finger between the pages at haphazard and rejoiced to see a compact range of writing with a margin, and as it chanced, three words caught his glance and stood out apart from the mass. Dyson read, The Gold Tiberius, and his face flushed with fortune and the lust of the hunter. He turned at once to the first leaf of the pocketbook and proceeded to read with rapt interest, 
The History of the Young Man with Spectacles From the filthy and obscure lodging situated, I verily believe, in one of the foulest slums of Clerkenwell, I indict this history of a life which, daily threatened, cannot last for very much longer. Every day, nay, every hour, I know too well my enemies are drawing their nets closer about me. Even now, I am condemned to be a close prisoner in my squalid room, and I know that when I go out, I shall go to my destruction. This history, if it chance to fall into good hands, may perhaps be of service in warning young men of the dangers and pitfalls that most surely must accompany any deviation from the ways of rectitude. My name is Joseph Walters. When I came of age, I found myself in possession of a small but sufficient income, and I determined that I would devote my life to scholarship. I do not mean the scholarship of these days. I had no intention of associating myself with men whose lives are spent in the unspeakably degrading occupation of editing classics, befouling the fair margins of the fairest books with idle and superfluous annotation, and doing their utmost to give a lasting disgust of all that is beautiful. An abbey church turned to the base use of a stable or a bakehouse as a sorry sight, but more pitiable still is a masterpiece spluttered over with a commenter's pen in his hideous mark, C.F. For my part, I chose the glorious career of scholar in its ancient sense. I longed to possess encyclopedic learning, to grow old amongst books, to distill day by day and year by year the inmost sweetness of all worthy writings. I was not rich enough to collect a library, and I was therefore forced to betake myself to the reading room of the British Museum. Oh, dim, far-lifted and mighty dome, mecca of many minds, mausoleum of many hopes, sad house where all desires fail. For there men enter in with hearts uplifted and dreaming minds, seeing in those exalted stairs a ladder to fame, in that pompous portico the gate of knowledge, and going in, find but vain vanity, and all but in vain. There, when the long streets are ringing, is silence. There, eternal twilight and the odor of heaviness. But there, the blood flows thin and cold, and the brain burns a dust. There is the hunt of shadows and the chase of embattled phantoms, a striving against ghosts and a war that has no victory. O dome, tomb of the quick, surely in thy galleries where no reverberant voice can call, sighs whisper ever, and mutterings of dead hopes, and there men's souls mount like moths towards the flame, and fall scorched and blackened beneath thee, O dim, far-lifted, and mighty dome. Bitterly do I now regret the day when I took my place at a desk for the first time and began my studies. I had not been an habitué of the place for many months, when I became acquainted with a serene and benevolent gentleman, a man somewhat past middle age, who nearly always occupied a desk next to mine. In the reading room, it takes little to make an acquaintance, a casual offer of assistance, a hint as to the search in the catalogue, and the ordinary politeness of men who constantly sit near each other. It was thus I came to know the man calling himself Dr. Lipsius. By degrees I grew to look for his presence and to miss him when he was away, as was sometimes the case, and so a friendship sprang up between us. His immense range of learning was placed freely at my service. 
He would often astonish me by the way in which he would sketch out, in a few minutes, the bibliography of a given subject, and before long I had confided to him my ambitions. "'Ah,' he said, "'you should have been a German. I was like that myself when I was a boy. It is a wonderful resolve, an infinite career. I will know all things. Yes, it is a device indeed. But it means this— a life of labor without end, and a desire unsatisfied at last. The scholar has to die, and die, saying, I know very little. Gradually, by speeches such as these, Lipsius seduced me. He would praise the career, and at the same time hint that it was as hopeless as the search for the philosopher's stone. And so, by artful suggestions, insinuated with infinite address, he by degrees succeeded in undermining all my principles. After all, he used to say, the greatest of all sciences, the key to all knowledge, is the science and art of pleasure. Rabelais was perhaps the greatest of all the encyclopedic scholars, and he, as you know, wrote the most remarkable book that has ever been written. And what does he teach men in this book? Surely the joy of living. I need not remind you of the words suppressed in most of the editions, the key of all the Rabelaisian mythology, of all the enigmas of his grand philosophy, Vive Joyeux. There you have all his learning. His work is the institutes of pleasure as the fine art. The finest art there is, the art of all arts. Rabelais had all science, but he had all life, too, and we have gone a long way since his time. You are enlightened, I think. You do not consider all the petty rules and bylaws that a corrupt society has made for its own selfish convenience as the immutable decrees of the eternal. Such were the doctrines that he preached, and it was by such insidious arguments, line upon line, here a little and there a little, that he at last succeeded in making me a man at war with the whole social system. I used to long for some opportunity to break the chains and to live a free life, to be my own rule and measure. I viewed existence with the eyes of a pagan, and Lipsius understood to perfection the art of stimulating the natural inclinations of a young man, hitherto a hermit. As I gazed up at the great dome, I saw it flushed with the flames and colors of a world of enticement, unknown to me. My imagination played me a thousand wanton tricks, and the forbidden drew me as surely as a lodestone draws on iron. At last... My resolution was taken, and I boldly asked Lipsius to be my guide. And that is where we will leave it for now. Uh, we'll come back next week for the conclusion of The Three Imposters. Um, thank you so much for listening. Thank you all for your support. Um, thank you for sending in emails and writing the reviews and giving ratings. I really appreciate all of that. Um, I haven't dropped my email address in a long time. You can email me at the weird tales podcast at gmail.com. Um, I would love to hear from you. Any thoughts you have, any comments, any criticism, anything you have to say, I'm always down to hear it. And I always reply to everybody. So, you know, feel free to write in if you want to, uh, if you want to have your own little brush with not at all with somebody who is not at all famous. Um, Please feel free to check out The Reignition Theory by Richard Norton. Uh, just search for The Reignition Theory uh, in any podcast reader that you are in, that you use. Uh, it is an audio drama about the destruction of one of the world's great cities. And there's also zombies in it. And I play, a, uh, I play one of the three main roles. So, woo! 
check it out. It's awesome. Uh, and, uh, lastly, if you want to support me on Patreon, that would be awesome. You can find it at patreon.com slash the weird tales podcast. Um, uh, Hermagoras, thank you so much for your support. I really appreciate it. Pontus Fredrickson. Thank you. Uh, Andrew Buchanan. Thank you so much. Damon Bowles. Thank you. Marco Van Putin. Thank you so much. Ryan Patrick. Thank you for your support. Matthias Hansen. Thank you. Alder Riley. Thank you. Mark Vincent, thank you. And Chris Cowley, thank you so much. Thank you all for your support. Um, every dollar goes back into the show and there are definite plans um, being laid for how the money is going to be used. Uh, some of it has already, like I've already paid off a couple of the uh, of the Pride Month readers. They've already got their stuff in and uh, I'm, I'm really looking forward to that because it's going to be great. Uh, I think that is it. Um, thank you so much for listening. I hope you have uh, a good week and I will see you next episode. Da 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 da. Here's the bloops. Some of them are educational. It was growing late and the autumn evening was drawing to a close amidst veils of haze and mist and in the stilled air, the voices and the roaring traffic and in fact, that, that incessant feet. I'm just going to try and pick it up in the middle of the sentence and God help me. The battered women in rusty black had begun to paw the lumps of cagmag and others gloated over unwholesome. Yeah, cagmag is indeed the word there. I went back and checked my hard copy to make sure. And now you and me, we're going to go on a little adventure and we're going to find out. Sorry, just bumped the microphone and we're going to find out what cagmag is dialectal England, inferior meat, or just in general, something inferior. So there you go. Cagmag, something inferior. Dyson passed through these night fires with some relief. He loved to meditate, but his thoughts were not as De Quincey's after his dose. I get that reference. <laughs> I get that reference. Because I read the audiobook of of um, the Diary of an English Opium Eater by Thomas De Quincey. That was a victory sip I just took for getting a reference. Um, feel free to check out. Feel free to check out The Diary of an English Opium Eater by Thomas De Quincey. It's available on audible.com, read by me. And soon found himself involved in a squalid network of gray two-storied houses, and then in the waste void... I'm going to look that up because there might be some words missing from there. Nope, there's no words missing in there. Mackin is just Mackin is just a 19th century writer and I don't do, and I'm not when he had settled himself on an exiguous Hey, guess what? Here's another word we're going to look up. Define exiguous. Very small in size or amount exiguous it's two new words we've learned today everybody and fall scorched and blackened beneath the 
O dim, far-lifted, and mighty dome. That was a How I Met Your Mother pretentious raspberry, because good lord. To quote, to quote the immortal Calvin from Calvin and Hobbes, holy schlamoly. Isn't there a cop show on where they talk like real people? <laughs> 